Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9, hear now the word of our God. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, They, on their part, acted with cunning, and went and made ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and from where do you come? They said to him, From a very very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey. On the day we set out to come to you, but now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them, to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephirah, Beirot, and kiriath Jearim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. And he did this to them, and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. 
But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, to this day in the place that he should choose. As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Yarmuth, to Yaphia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beit Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beit Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stands still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machedah, and it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave, and set men by it to guard them, but do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. 
But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Makedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makedah, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. This is the word of the Lord. Israel has entered the land. They've crossed the Jordan. They're beginning to take possession of the land of Canaan. And indeed, taking possession is the central theme of these chapters. We heard how Jericho fell, quite literally. But then Achan took some gold and silver from Jericho and a cloak from, of Shinar, a Babylonian priestly garment, and buried it in his tent. Achan had taken items devoted to God, things that should have been put into the treasury of the tabernacle, the tent of God, and he put them into his own tent. There's a way in which Achan had sort of set himself up as a, a priest over against the priests of God. And so with the false priests in the camp, the hosts of Israel couldn't overthrow the little heap. That's what, that's what I means, heap. The little heap couldn't be overthrown. But once... Achan was put to death, and Israel was restored to God's service. They quickly dispatched Ai and reduced it to a heap, burying its king under a heap of stones, just like Achan had been buried under a heap of stones. In other words, we saw last week the importance of holiness in spiritual warfare. If Israel is not holy, then they will not inherit the land. If Israel is not faithful to God, if they pursue their own wealth and glory then they'll become just like the Canaanites. Now, we've been seeing that in the conquest, in in Joshua's day, Israel was supposed to be the angel of death. Israel is, is, uh, God had said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Israel is called to bring a picture of what we talked about this morning. Because this morning we hear that that Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who will return to judge the living and the dead. He will return with glory to judge the living and the dead. And that final judgment that Jesus brings, Israel, the Son of God, is supposed to bring a foretaste of, a picture of, so, so that the world can see that God is going to judge sin. Because God wants to bring the nations to repentance. And so actually... Tonight, we catch a glimpse of, we saw last week the importance of holiness, we see tonight the importance of mercy in a very strange way. Because if you're going to serve as a picture of Jesus, a stand-in for Jesus, then you had better be holy, but you had also better show mercy. And it's a curious example of the mercy of God, because the, the Gibeonites were supposed to die. They are among the condemned tribes, They are supposed to be exterminated. And yet, there's a very strong hint in our text that if Israel had consulted with the Lord, what would God have said? The hint is, well, they're among the, they're not supposed to live. This is a case where God's mercy (laughs) extends even to the foolishness of his people. 
sometimes, sometimes yes, God will use your great successes for His glory. And sometimes God will use your failures for His glory. It's still His mercy either way. It doesn't mean that Israel did the right thing, although once they swore the oath, they had to keep it. But in His great mercy, God uses their failure to bring salvation to the Gibeonites. Because when the kings of the land heard of the coming of Israel, they're gathering together to fight as one against this upstart Joshua and his little band. But if you think about what sort of what's going on here God had said in Genesis 12 that those who bless Abraham and his seed will be blessed those who curse Abraham's seed will be cursed so by coming to fight against Israel God's curse falls upon the curse of, of, of those who curse Abraham and God has already declared that their wickedness is full. Back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 9, he says that the, the curse of the Canaanites is, is complete. And it's time, it's time for their, 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 now their wickedness is complete, which doesn't make them the most wicked nation ever. It just means their wickedness is over now. It's the, t- the time has come for the final judgment to fall upon the Canaanites. And so they have... And so now Israel comes to be the agent of God's curse against the Canaanites. Except for Gibeon. The Gibeonites hear what Joshua has done at Jericho and at Ai. Remember remember that, because that's what they're paying attention to. What they say later is... We heard about your great deeds, the great deeds of your God in Egypt. We, We heard about what happened on the other side of the Jordan... Because after all, they gotta, they gotta, if they say, we heard about Jericho and I, oh, that means you're really close by. People far away haven't heard that yet. So, they, they're smart. They hear about what happens recently and they're like, we better talk about the stuff that happened a long time ago. But they, but they also say, we have come because of the name of Yahweh your God. We have heard a report of him, verse 9, and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan. And so they, and so they come and they, they send their emissaries with this dilapidated clothing and this old moldy food. And, and it's a good setup. And Israel falls for it. Gibeon tricks their way into salvation. You think about you think about how Jesus how Jesus talks about how the that you know, sort of violent men seize the kingdom of God by violence. There's a way in which there's a there's a way in which the Gibeonites know that if they come to Israel and say, "Hey, we're your neighbors and we want," they know that the curse is against them. They are already under the ban of, of judgment, and so they are willing to do anything to be saved. I mean. Fortunately, I don't think any of us have to do anything like this in order to be saved. All you have to do is believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But the point that we hear is in Joshua is these people are willing to do anything to be saved. And they recognize that, that we are under the curse of death. But we want to live. And sure, Israel should have inquired of the Lord. But in God's providence, Israel failed. And so the blessing of Abraham 
comes to Gibeon because Gibeon comes and they they bless the seed of Abraham and they say we will we will be your servants uh, whatever you whatever you do but you know three days later Israel realizes what has happened and then it takes another three days to march to Gibeon so what so what what day will it be when when the verdict is rendered <laughs> it'll be the seventh day. It's interesting how the peace of God comes on the Sabbath, as it were. Again, we don't, which day of the week was it? Don't know. But there's, it's just interesting how, how this is, uh, that in a sense, Gibeon enters Israel's rest on the seventh day. And I want you to think about how seriously God takes your oaths and covenants. Israel here, they, they swear an oath based on a false premise. They've been lied to. They've been deceived. But they swear an oath based on a lie. And yet, they understand that they are still bound to their oath. Psalm 15 says, The the blessed man swears an oath to his own hurt and does not break it. If you say you're going to do something, then you need to do it. Proverbs tells us the, the only way out after you've sworn an oath is if your neighbor releases you. So the only way that Israel can attack the Gibeonites would be if the Gibeonites released Israel from their oath. You think there's any chance of that happening? <laughs> They're like, no, 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 you swore an oath. We're here. Now, there is another way that Israel could be released from the oath, and that would be if Gibeon violated the terms of the oath. So if Gibeon attacks Israel, then, well, all bets are off. But again, Gibeon's like, no, 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 we want to be saved. We don't want to die. Henceforth, they will share in the blessing of Abraham. And that's, you know, that's where, as we think about when you swear an oath, when you make a promise, when you say, this is what we're, I'm going to do, it's important to do it. And not to just try to find some way, oh, oh this, you know, it's not going to go the way I'm hoping. Well, that's not, when you swear an oath, when you say, I mean, Jesus says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. You, you, shouldn't, need, you shouldn't be the sort of person that says, well, I, I, I didn't swear an oath that I'd do it. No, if you say you're going to do it, then do it. If you, and, and now, again, you can always go to the person you made the promise to and say, um, can we talk about this? Because the situation's changed, and can we talk about through the... And then, and then the, the other person can always let you out. So that's where, you know, don't, don't feel like, oh, this is... Because, you know, I'm trapped forever. No, actually, reasonable people will oftentimes let you out and say, oh, yeah, that's not a good situation. But, but the point is that you should be a person of your word and be faithful to what you have said you will do. And then notice that when... When they talk, you know, Joshua summons them in verse 22 and he says, why did you deceive us? And they say, well, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And so we're in your hand. What Do, do to us whatever you see fit. Now, there's, there's a certain irony here. They are blessed and cursed on this day. They are blessed because they, they now live as, as, as members of the people of God. 
but they're cursed because they are forever servants. And the response of the Gibeonites is, cool. (laughs) We can live with that. Now, if you think about it, this is reflected in Psalm 84, where the psalmist says he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in tents of sin. Yeah. I don't care what position you give me. Actually, I, I, think of, I think of the, the minister um, who I, I knew once upon a time, who he had, he had been caught in heinous sin, and, and he came to his presbytery and said, do anything you want to me, but please do not cut me off from Jesus. He was like, I, I, he, 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 he was... He was repentant. And so basically they, they removed him from office. He, he was never going to serve as a minister again. And he was, he was uh, suspended from the table for a time. Because, but, but then it was like, but okay, no, if you want to follow Jesus, then you're, you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so the, he was not excommunicated because he had repented. And so that's where sort of the, the way in which the way in which Gibeon understands, do anything you want to us, as long as we get to live before God. Now, uh, it's worth noting that later in 2 Samuel 21, we hear that King David received a complaint from the Gibeonites that his predecessor, King Saul, had slaughtered the Gibeonites without cause. It appears that Saul had sought to destroy the Gibeonites and basically cut off their place in Israel. Samuel portrays it something as a misguided effort to complete the conquest, almost as though uh, Saul had sort of, you know, he, he had failed to destroy the Amalekites, the whole King Agag episode, but um, now he's sort of like, he's going he's gonna, he's gonna to make things right by destroying the Gibeonites. It's like, uh, no, you got that backwards. The Gibeonites are, are protected by the oath. And since Saul had sought to cut off their place in Israel, the verdict that David agrees to is that Saul's offspring will be cut off so that Saul has no place in Israel. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's only certain members, of the, not, not the whole family of Saul. But basically, David's, David, David speaks of this as making atonement for Saul's sin. Uh, making clear, the Gibeonites are not to be mistreated. Now, uh, this what do we, what do we make of this? I mean, the, the, the image of the Gibeonites lived on in the Christian imagination. Because the Gibeonites were not to be destroyed, but they are definitely treated as something of an underclass. They are subordinates to the service of Israel's God. And... One 19th century author used the image of the Gibeonites to describe what modern society is doing to the church. William Henry Ruffner was an old school Presbyterian pastor, and, and he, he said this in 1853. Listen, listen how he says this. Few, uh, you, you, if you've ever attempted to think that 1850s was like, oh, wasn't you know, America was a Christian nation, right? Few seem to perceive what appears fearfully evident to the writer, that our existent Christianity is almost universally corrupt and is becoming more so continually. 
that unless its present tendencies be speedily reversed, a state of worse than medieval darkness will soon settle upon Christendom. Not a state of intellectual decrepitude and enslavement, but one of intellectual triumph and haughty independence. Not a state in which the church, like a besotted despot, will drag men in chain gangs behind her bloody car, but one in which man will rise in proud supremacy and either trample the church underfoot or else spare her in Gibeonite degradation to become a hewer of wood and drawer of water about the gorgeous temple of Mammon. Or, to say the very least, the church and the world will move on in harmony, neither disposed to assert its own peculiarities. Ruffner saw how the church was becoming like the Gibeonites, hewers of wood, drawers of water, serving the temple of Mammon. The church is supposed to be the place where the kingdom of God is made visible on earth. Again, not the church is the kingdom, but the church is the place where the kingdom of God is made visible on earth. And what Ruffner is saying is that when the church loses sight of the kingdom of God, then the church becomes like the Gibeonites, servants of some other kingdom. I mean, there's a way in which the Gibeonites were getting the right direction, joining the kingdom of God. But if the church becomes... Because what, what is it that, that happened in the 19th century? What is it that characterized the 20th century church? It was that the church felt the need to sort of become like the culture, to become more and more... We need to, we need to hold on to the culture and in so doing became like the culture and so had nothing left to say to the culture because the church was becoming hewers of wood and drawers of water about the gorgeous temple of Mammon. And Ruffner noticed in his day that pastors were trying to attract the wealthy, the important people, so they preached sermons that people would want to hear. They, they didn't care about the poor and that's part of what he's talking about in his book is this is... We're heading in the wrong direction. We're, we're, just, we're just becoming the church of the upper classes. We're not, be, we're not being the church that preaches the gospel to all people. But notice what happens to Gibeon in our text. Because when the five kings of the Amorites hear that Gibeon has gone over to Israel, now they come up against Gibeon. And they're led by Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, and they come to march against their old ally. Now, um, that name, Adonai Zedek, sound at all familiar? The first king of Jerusalem ever named in the Bible is a guy named Melchi Zedek, king of righteousness. Now, Adonai Zedek, lord of righteousness, rules on the throne. People have wondered, is this is, is he the descendant of Melchizedek? I mean, he's certainly Melchizedek's heir. And it's, it's partly why we, we suspect that this Zedek title, this may have been sort of the title of the king of Jerusalem. But this king of Jerusalem is nothing like Melchizedek. He does not heed the word of the Lord. He does not bless Abraham or his seed. And thus the curse of Abraham, those who curse you will be cursed, comes upon him. And so Adonai Zedek leads the, the five kings against Gibeon. Now, um, when, when you hear about these, all these kings, we're going to hear about a lot of kings. And don't, don't be thinking about the, sort of these 
kings of huge countries because remember we're talking about an area the the, the whole land of Israel uh, you know as in terms of the uh, from north to south the whole land that Joshua and his people are conquering it's about the size of New Jersey so just for a picture in terms of this is a very small a very small region and and then the the cities of Canaan are are nothing like the cities in our day so the big cities like like Gibeon might have hmm, 5000 maybe maybe 10000 people um so when we talk about these kings of cities, uh, it'd be like saying that the king of Roseland and the king of North Liberty and the king of Wakarusa gathered together to fight against the king of Sumption Prairie. <laughs> and you're like, where is Sumption Prairie? Exactly. So I mean, these, are, these are really tiny communities, each governed by their own warlord who gets called king, because that's what you call the ruler of a territory. So, but, think about why they're doing this. They don't want more Canaanite cities going over to join Israel. If Gibeon succeeds at this, then other Canaanite cities might say, oh, well, we don't, we'll join Israel too, and the next thing you know, Israel will have possession of the whole land. So they hope to smash Gibeon, nip this in the bud, and hopefully avoid more defections. So the Gibeonites cry out to Joshua for help. They sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly. Help us. Save us. And having made a covenant with Gibeon, Joshua will honor his word. When Gibeon sends word, the kings of the Amorites have come. He marches his men all through the night. And the Lord himself declares, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Now, part of why God says this is probably that there could well have been some who were remembering, remember when when Achan did that whole thing about taking the stuff and putting it in his tent? Well, Our leaders just made a covenant with one of the peoples that's supposed to be destroyed. So uh, what's God going to do to us now? Remember, they hadn't inquired of the Lord. So they're like, did, did we really screw this one up? And that's why God says, no, you didn't. You did precisely what you should have done. You made this oath, you made this covenant, now you need to keep it. In this way, you might say, God puts his stamp of approval, he puts his blessing on their failure, which led to the mercy of including the Gibeonites in the people of God. This is the final proof that God desired the salvation of the Gibeonites and that it was according to his will that these Gentiles be delivered by the hand of Israel. And so God himself fought for Israel. And you see this in how the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, verse 10, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Behoron and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And the Lord himself threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And it says, they were more killed by hailstones than by the army. I mean, this, God himself fought for Israel. And then in verse 12, it says that at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still. 
The moon stopped. Verse 14 goes so far as to say that, that the Lord, Yahweh, obeyed the voice of a man. So far, Joshua has been portrayed as sort of Joshua, the, the servant of Moses, the one who had, who had sort of followed after Moses. But here we see Joshua's greatness. Never before or since has God obeyed a man. But Joshua is God's anointed conqueror. Now, as, as to the stopping of the sun, some suggest that, you know, God is, off to, is you know, capable of doing whatsoever he wills, and so it could have been that he stopped the earth's rotation somehow without the earth doing crazy things. I mean, that's part of the point of a miracle. In, when, when miracles happen, um, God sort of, re, sort of does his thing, and then when the miracle's over, creation just goes on as though nothing happened, because that's, that's what a miracle is. Others have said, well, um, stop could refer to stopping of the light and the heat of the sun. So the hailstorm could have been part of, of that. Um, but, uh, I mean, this, we sang from Habakkuk 3, uh, that song plainly suggests the actual miracle that stops the earth's rotation. But the marvelous part, and the whole point of it is, that God does this for Israel after Israel foolishly enters into a covenant with a nation devoted to destruction. God does this mighty deed in response to their failure, which turns out to be his mercy. Uh, the, The image of Gibeon being connected with strange deeds is uh, echoed in Isaiah 28, where it speaks of God's alien work in the valley of Gibeon, that God should arise and fight for the Gentiles. Even so, Isaiah says it's strange that God would arise and fight against his people. But part of what God is teaching his people is what happens when holiness and mercy collide. God's promise to Abraham was that all nations would be blessed through his seed. But then God also said that he would curse those who curse you. Well, how can God be just and still justify the ungodly? Because justifying the ungodly requires God to show mercy while still remaining just and holy. The Valley of Gibeon reminds us that the collision of God's holiness and mercy will shake the heavens and the earth. Indeed, the the course of the sun and the moon are affected when God delivers Jew and Gentile alike from the powers of sin and death at the cross of Jesus when the sun will go dark. Then in verses 16 to 28, we hear of how the five kings flee and and hide in the cave and they're captured and their armies are killed or, or flee And Joshua brings his captains to the cave at Makedah, and he has has his captains put their feet on the necks of these kings. And the picture here is that that of the, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. Thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. The seed of the woman is crushing the head of the serpent, and that's actually the Habakkuk 3 passage uses the same theme as well. Because this is what our Lord Jesus has done. 
He has cast Satan down. He has trampled the head of the serpent. And now he continues to reign, destroying all his and our enemies as he brings salvation to his people. And that's... That's where, I know, sometimes it doesn't look like it. Sometimes you don't see, how is God doing this? But, as Paul says in Romans, that our God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because the, when it says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, oh yes, Jesus is most certainly the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. But if Jesus has united you to himself, if there is truly that uncreated grace of God himself giving himself to us, if you have been united to the life of God, then you have become the seed of the woman. And that's why Paul uses that same image to say, you, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. That this is what happens every time when, every time, it is in as simple a way as when you do battle with temptation and you say no to Satan, you're kicking his fangs in. When you, when you get, if you get martyred, sort of, it goes all the way from the simple little things to the biggest things. When, when Stephen is martyred in the book of Acts, when the, the, the faithful Christian goes to, the, to their cross, that is yet another way in which Jesus is winning the victory because Satan can't win, even when he thinks that he's taken down another one. No, he can't win because the church must never forget, we must never forget, that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus has united us to himself. He is continuing to work by his word and spirit. And so therefore, no matter what happens, whether through our lives or whether through our deaths, what God is doing is bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And so when, when mercy and holiness collide, the, the result is both genuine mercy and genuine holiness that we see in Israel, in, their, in the conquest. We see it as the Gibeonites are brought into the, the people of God and then rescued and saved from their enemies. You know, just as Joshua saved Gibeon, so our Lord Jesus has saved us. So let us ask him for mercy. Oh Lord God, have mercy on us and help us and by your grace renew us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending your only begotten Son that he might join himself to our humanity, that he might take to himself a, a true body and a reasonable soul, that he might become one with us, that he might make us one with you. And, and Father, thank you that he joined himself to this story, that he became the, the, the true Joshua, the true son of David, the, the second Adam, the true Israel. The, the one who would bring life to the dead. Thank you. And Lord, have mercy on us. Because we, we are weak and we need your power, your strength. We are forgetful and we need to remember what you have promised. So Lord, open our eyes and help us to see Jesus. Open our ears and help us to hear what he is saying. Open our hearts 
that we might love you and love one another. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on all those who are weak and frail and going through trials and of various kinds. Have mercy and, and, and grant to them your, your peace and, and, and your grace. That in your mercy you would shine the light of your countenance upon them and give them your peace. Have mercy, Lord, on, on those who are, who are doing well and who are, who are rejoicing in the midst of, of, of good times and good situations. Lord, have mercy and strengthen them and bless them and use this time to, to, to encourage them in their walk before you. Lord, have mercy upon, upon us in our, in our homes that as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as, as, as roommates and friends and neighbors, as colleagues in our work and in, in all the, the, the places where you put us, help us to, to be single-minded in our, in our love for you, in our devotion to you, in our, in our walk before you, that, that we might deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. Lord, have mercy upon your church, both here and throughout this, this town, throughout our, these communities around us, and indeed throughout all the world, that your gospel would go forth to the ends of the earth, that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it, that those who walk in darkness might see the light of the glorious gospel of your Son and believe and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, that your holy name, our triune God, would be made known and praised throughout all the nations of the earth. Have mercy, Lord, on those who preach your gospel and give them boldness to proclaim faithfully and with confidence the good news of the kingdom of Christ. And Lord, have mercy on our rulers. Have mercy on those who, who, who govern in this land and throughout all the nations, that you would give them wisdom to do that which is right and pleasing in your sight, and that you would overrule the folly of their hearts that they might do that which is right and that you would bless and have mercy upon your people. Lord, as we go our separate ways this night, may, may your grace and your mercy shine upon us. And as we come to this, your table, we pray that, that you would nourish us and strengthen us and sustain us with the body and blood of your dear Son. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.